Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 50. As always, my name is Mark. You're with me today, all the way over in Hawaii. It's Orion. Hello. And uh, again, you're in a you're in the middle of a kitchen. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> it adds flavor, right? You're out. You're you're exploring the world on adventures. Yeah. Right. Today we're going to be talking about the Granite Games Summit, which happened too long ago. Is it nearly a month, or is it over a month? I don't even know. Time. About a month, maybe About, slightly, just over a month. Yeah, which because it uh, was like I bet it was what like the eighth, ninth of March or something. Something like eight, nine, that. ten of March. Yeah. I don't know. The, this past month or two, like time has gotten real weird on me. So it's fitting that we're talking about this this uh, convention after the PAX East one, even though this happened before PAX East. But it's fine. How does time even work? Who knows? No one knows, really. I mean, but we got a great list of interesting games to talk about that we played at the Granite Games Summit, which frankly is a really, really good convention up here in the New England area in Nashua, New Hampshire. It's run by really nice people, and they do a fantastic job at making a great convention, especially if you're like us and you just want to kind of go to a convention, sit down and play a whole bunch of games, which is what we did. So let's talk about those games. I was there more of the days than you were, so I played a couple before you got there. The yeah, we went. I think we went both Friday, or it ran Friday to Sunday. You went on Friday, but I had to work. We played a couple games there, and then we played a bunch on Saturday. Yeah, and then I was going to go Sunday, but then I was too tired. I was exhausted, mm-hmm. so sadly burnt out on that one, but better than burning out some more with some kind of obligation to play games. So before I got there, uh, or before you got there, rather, I first played the Bloody Inn just because I was feeling awkward and walking around, as you do in conventions, and I didn't really see anyone that I knew. So I saw some, I saw a looking for game sign, which I'm glad I've seen more of at conventions, and they were playing the Bloody Inn, which I kind of knew because I'd played it a couple times before. You've played this one, right, now? Uh, no, I've never played this one. You've never played it, okay? Because because Matt has it. He got it. You guys have you guys have it, or Matt has it. and You guys have played it once or twice, but I've never played. Yeah, it's a. It's weird about like game. murdering people in your inn in the most inventive ways, or something. No, there's not a lot of inventiveness with the murdering. It's that you have to bury them. So oh, it's okay. one of those games where you go through a lot of processes to score points, and it's why I think I keep getting less enthused about it as I play because it just seems like a lot of work to not do a whole lot because how it works is that it's also one of those games where your cards are your currency. So you always have to like keep getting rid of your cards and then draw back up and then get rid of them to do something. So there's like a whole bunch of multi-step processes. How it works is that basically the patrons of this inn are rotating through to the different rooms and they have different categories and they're all good at doing certain things and you spend cards to take people into your hand to murder them to use them to build i can't remember what the word is in the game but basically graves uh, mausoleums or something that you have to then bury the people that you murdered in in order to steal from them because obviously if you murder someone you can't take their money till you bury them right just like unlike (laughs) <laughs> Unlike every video game ever, but, you know. Sure. Continue. And every step of the process is not only an action, but it's also spending cards of some sort. Now, if you get enough of a particular type of card... So each person is has a different f- suit, basically. And their suit is good at a different type of action, which means that you don't have to discard them if you use them for that action. But if you're using someone for a, an action they're not suited for then you discard them. So you can kind of build up a hand that is good at the cycle, but that'll take like the whole game to do, and then it's just over. So (laughs) I've never found it to be particularly satisfying, and this one kind of confirmed it. I think it's interesting. It's got a kind of cool macabre artwork, but I don't really ever want to play it again. It's just kind of an okay game. So that's the first thing I did. And then, I was, after that, I was also wandering around, and I saw a group sitting down to play a game that I have been wanting to play. This is one of those games where when I 
the couple of times I've tweeted about, ooh, what 2018 releases do I really need to play? Like, what are the really exciting, cool games of 2018? This one popped up multiple times with people like, if you can play this, you've got to. And I can totally see why they're excited about it. And it's called Let's Make a Bus Route. It is a Japanese roll and write game with a shared board, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. And it's by far, well, we talked about Welcome To in the last episode, and that's a solid roll and write. Uh, but this one's my favorite of the handful of roll and write games that I've played. Mostly because you're all, again, on a shared board, as the name implies, you're making bus routes through some section of Tokyo, I think. Uh, it might be a different city, I don't quite remember. And it's not like super mean, but you do have to pay attention to what other people are doing because people will kind of just get in your way. And if people get in your way and you have to go through the same section of road that they've already been on, you get penalized if you're the person who does, who does it the most. But otherwise, you're trying to create a route so that you pick up people and drop them off efficiently. So in other words, you kind of want to fill your bus with people and then drop them off instead of alternating. So you have the strategy of... Is it a traveling salesman problem? I'm trying to remember the specifics of that. Uh, Well, that one is you have a list of destinations. Yeah. That one's you have a list of destinations and you're trying to find the shortest route to hit all of them. Kind of. It's kind of like that. Yeah, like I said, there's, there's groups of people and each type of person wants to be dropped off at a different type of building. Along with other things. There's a couple other little set collection-like things. But mm-hmm. mostly you want to, for instance, pick up like five tourists before you drop them off. Because you get, it's like a triangle number thing. The more people you drop off at once, the more points you're going to get. And there's a limit on how many sets of each type of person you're allowed to drop off. So, for instance, I don't remember if this is correct. But once you drop off three sets of tourists, you're just done with that category. So you really want to be efficient, but you also want to stay out of the way of people. And you also want to try to find multiple ways to score points, as well as accomplish a couple of public objectives. I think it's just the two public objectives. Uh, So if you're the first person to accomplish those things, you'll get more points. Everyone else gets a lesser number of points if they accomplish it. It's just really fun. It's a card system, so it's not really a roll and write. It's a flip and write or reveal and write, which don't sound as good. And even that is slightly different between each player because the card will just show a color and the deck has, oh, I think six different colors and you're going to see them all twice. But each color defines a different type of movement for each person. So one of them will be like move two ahead and one of them will be like move three spaces but you have to take a right turn at at every you know you have to take a right turn at each segment one of them just move one one of them's move three in a straight line Uh, so everyone has the same shapes they're just coded to different colors so you're not all doing the same movement each time Mm -hmm. it's just really cleverly done and well made and executed and we immediately played a second game like as soon as we were done with the first we're like oh we could play something else or like well, or we could just play this again and it was a blast by the second game i was really planning out the whole route because not only do you want to do that because you know precisely how many segments you get to move in the game it's not that difficult to count it out like it's just a big grid and you know not all of the grid is filled in with roads but a good chunk of it is and by the halfway point in my second game i had counted out precisely where I wanted to go and I saw that I had like two or three segments of wiggle room so I felt pretty confident and I was able to hit it exactly where I wanted to finish at the on the on the very last turn oh there's also a thing where if you stop at certain points that have little traffic light symbols you just get to move an extra space so you're also planning out and trying to gain efficiency of movement and literally extra movement for the game while also being just efficient with your route in avoiding people. So really mm-hmm. nicely done. If I think I tweeted about it when I was playing the game, but if I was a publisher, I'd be really wanting to try to pick up the North American rights to that because it's very, very good. But alas, it's only yet to import it or find a used copy. The final game that I played on Friday, which 
is probably the highlight of the conference for me, or at least it's the game I think is probably the best, was Sidereal Confluence, which goes to show that 2017 was just a really, really, really good year for games, because this is another great 2017 release, and I really want to play this game again. The group I was playing Let's Make a Bus Route with, one of the guys in the group was part of this kind of arranged meetup to play Sidereal. So I jumped in on that. I ended up being the eighth person there. The game goes up to nine, and it probably works better as you gain players, even though it's a big, semi-complicated, you know, medium-weight game, but it deals with trading and lots of cool interactions. And so I got in, and we played it in the evening, and as a play experience with that group, it was kind of annoying because one of the guys got really drunk and obnoxious and was shouting and, like, just being silly. But I wanted to play the game again. Like, even that and, like, a headache I got from that didn't damper my enthusiasm for the game. Which I think says quite a bit, especially in a, in a conference setting. Like, I just had an absolute blast. Yeah, you talked about this a lot and all the different, like, asymmetric player powers and the trading and the negotiation and all the craziness uh, that is part of the game. And not just because you were playing with eight players. Yeah, so if you've played Chinatown, which you played that the one time I did, right? Yeah. Which is a, a very elegant, simple game of you get kind of unequal starting goods, and you make trades, and you do mutually beneficial trades, and try to get sets of things and stuff like that. And it's all about negotiation. It's like if you combine Chinatown and, like, Cosmic Encounter, or a big giant fantasy flight game with all like chinatown and twilight imperium like it's it's just huge and unfortunately the production value isn't that great i think it's a whiz kids release and i'm not a huge fan of whiz kids and in this case like it, it nothing looks great it's just kind of medium the player mats aren't aren't like cardboard they're kind of thick paper and everything like that but once you get in the game it doesn't really matter because it's a game about trading and black boxes and by black boxes i mean machines where you input something and just get a consistent output based on your input so everyone is going to have a list of cards that are all different and it's going to be like you put in a large blue cube and you get out two black cubes and a white cube and the value you get out of running it through the machine increases in any situation um, sometimes by a lot, sometimes by a little. Again, it depends on which which race you are. And then there's just a free-for-all trading phase. And you're trying to score different ways, which again can depend on the players. There's stuff, there's, a, there's an auction phase where you kind of get new machines or new ways to score. And it's just kind of madness, wonderful, wonderful madness that somehow works. <laughs> it's super asymmetrical like my race had the most efficient machines of anyone like by far like it, it tells you precisely what general uh trading values are so like exchange rates for all the different resources there's like seven different kinds of cubes eight if you play of one particular race and then a, a couple of other things and you can trade nearly anything so it gives you that that rough exchange rate and then on each of the machines it'll tell you using that established exchange rate what the value of your input and outputs are so most machines will increase it by 50 to 75 percent mine were like 250 percent like i doubled to tripled or i guess 150 to 200 percent i doubled to tripled the value of anything i put into it but it was very expensive for me I had to run this kind of secondary thing uh, and power it with a certain type of resource to be able to power my machines, which also made it difficult for me to like loan out machines to people because that's something you can do. So I just kind of sat in my corner and wanted to get good efficient trades so I could run and get really mega outputs to be able to trade better and kind of sneak up uh, into a really efficient economy once I was able to power multiple machines. Someone else, like the person next to me, had these really cool set of machines, like 12 of them, that he could not run. He couldn't use any of his cubes. He could only loan them out to people and like trade trade like leases on them for a turn. 
and they would just, unlike every other machine, they would take a certain color of cube and then just multiply it. Everything else turned different cubes into different types of cubes, as well as increased their value. This one just multiplied. Like, you put in two big cubes and you get four cubes out of it. So he was trying to trade those off, you know, and get value for that. Um, Another, the person next to him, she had... I didn't even negotiate with her because our powers weren't synchronous, but like she had technologies. Oh yeah. Whenever you research like a new technology, like a new type of machine that you, you first win in the auction and then you like pay to research it, you get it exclusively for a turn, but then it's available to everyone the next turn. Like it's shared technology for her. She just broke that rule. Like any technology that she got, which she could get pretty easily, it wouldn't unlock that for the other people. But she was the only person who could, like, loan out technology. So she was trying to do that. One guy made wild cubes that just were wild, and that's the only way you get them in the game. One guy just settled on planets, and I literally couldn't settle on planets. Like, I had no colonizing ability, but he that's, like, all he did. One guy basically traded favors. Like, he had a special token only for his race, and he could put them in trades to kind of boost the trade and then cash them in at a later time. All kinds of craziness like this, and yet somehow it, it all worked fine, even with lots of yelling and shouting and obnoxiousness from some of the players. Like, I kind of just did my thing and tried to utilize it as best I could, and I, I absolutely loved it. I It's, it's the, one of the best implementations of trading I've ever seen in a game, just because it's so purely finding good trades with people. Like Chinatown, just turned to 11. Chinatown which, in space... In space, that's uglier, but better and crazy (laughs) and wild and requires a massive table. Also, like, they created this whole mythos for the game with, like, tons of flavor text, like Fantasy Flight, like Twilight Imperium levels of flavor text. But it's so, like, seriously, like, like, very serious. Like, Twilight Imperium, yeah, it's kind of, like, serious space opera stuff, but, it, you know, it, it's self-aware. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek a bit also. This one was, like, real serious to the point where, like, half of the races are stupidly hard to pronounce. Really? <laughs> like, like really stupidly hard to pronounce just because, you know, it's an alien language. Mm-hmm. So, they would, the, the designers, I think, had a blast with that. It was, I, I want to play it again so bad. I'm trying not to buy new games, but I really want to play this game. I don't know how well it'll work with like less than five. I think five would have to be the minimum player count for that for Sidereal. I'm kind of imagining something like the mega game we played where everyone's just like running around, although not over the whole room, but everyone's just like running around trying to trade and kind of doing their own thing and madly exchanging resources. Yeah. I mean, except that it does a very good job of once you know the, the main structure of the game, it does a good job of telling you what you're good at. And it even has in multiple places on your player aid, like you need to focus, you're good at this thing. You need to focus on this. Like mine, it was like, don't even try to invest in a technology until round four, at least because you're, you're really slow at the beginning and you need to build up. Mm -hmm. Um, I did do that and I still did. Okay. I came in like third out of eight or fourth. Maybe there was like a top tier that we were all, I was like at the bottom of the top tier of players who were in competition, but it does a pretty good job. And I had like a medium to easy ranked one. And some of them, like the, the one that can lease out technologies looked really complicated to even figure out like what's a good, like what do other people want vis-a-vis technologies? So certainly that's more for experienced players, but it it does a good job because the powers are so distinct of just saying like, hey, this is what you're good at, so utilize it in negotiations. Anyways, Stereo Confluence, really cool. I wish it looked nicer. I wish the production was better. But for a game that's just like black boxes and cubes and free-for-all trading, like somehow it seems to really, really work. Maybe it'll fall apart if I play it more, but I certainly want to play it more. So that's what I did on Friday. On Saturday, we had arranged beforehand to play a classic, classic game from the 80s, I believe, the mid-80s. Number one on Board Game Geek, in other words, like, game label numbered one, like, on the game ID number on the URL. It's the first, the first game in the database. Yeah, the first game that they put into the database, Democker, which was... Yeah, what... 
what a cool game. experience. So we played with a group who had mostly played before. It was four of us, right? Or no, was it five? Five. It was five. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's. I think it's kind of explicitly a five-player game. And it's a game about German elections. Each person takes control of a different political party from Germany. And you're going through a series of regional elections, or states, I guess. Are they called states in Germany or provinces? I don't remember. Uh, in the game, they were called states. They were called states in the translation, at least. Yeah. And you're trying to spend your money wisely, although there's, we'll get to it later, but the money spending was a bit, bit weird, but kind of spread your influence wisely to strategically do the best in all these elections. And it's often a, a matter of timing of like, do I want to go for the one that's about to happen or plan ahead for the future where I have a bit less knowledge? I think the structure of the game was the coolest because you're competing over getting seats in these elections, and but you can see the current one that you're that's going to resolve at the end of the round. But then you can see the next three that will elections that will run, and you can spend resources to kind of go into those those future elections at various rates of return. And you have to you're limited into how much you can put into any given state per round. So you kind of have to spread your resources out. Um, so I thought that was the coolest part of the game. Certainly, I think it has to be like it, it's. It's not only makes for interesting decision making. It's just in the you know in, in good game design. It's also very thematic. In an election, you have to balance your focuses, especially in you know when you have multiple uh, different votes you're you're fighting over. You have to do that when you're on the road. Like that's why politicians spend so much time in like Iowa because it's a swing state, and they spend no time in California because. Everyone kind of knows how California is going to going to fall, um, so you have to focus on where you think you'll get the greatest return relative to your opponents. Also, so very thematic in that way. And you kind of go through a series of phases. You compete over the media. You compete over party elections. You compete over popularity. And some of these you're jockeying for position with other people, and some you're just kind of trying to accumulate as many as you can. But I I, I think. So all of that said, I thought it was a really cool game. I enjoyed playing it. Mm -hmm. I think the ways the resources translated into each other weren't always clean. There's a lot of cases where it's like, okay, I have a bunch of money, but what can I even do with it? Which will right. come back to probably our biggest criticism. Well, let's get into um, that or, now, right? There's, there's the and, auction, and, and, basically. Uh, I think both of us, our, our biggest complaints were the ways the game implemented randomness, especially... Yes these what were they called the uh the polls or something yeah it was like uh, opinion poll blind they they were an, an opinion poll i think you and you you were published you were vying for them and then you could optionally publish them yeah i think from the from a very loose thematic perspective it was about the rights to the opinion poll and the idea that if you publish an opinion poll it'll actually help reinforce that opinion which probably has some grounds in reality. But I was going to say, is, is there some historical some thing that they were trying to model with that? I think, I don't remember, I don't remember the name. I think it has a name. The idea that the voters, even pre-election, will tend to converge over popular, more popular choices just because they think that person is more likely to win. So it's mm -hmm. kind of self-reinforcing. Okay. I think in the game, obviously, it has a much bigger impact than it would in real life. So anyways, yeah. the, the way the mechanism works in the game is that it's a blind auction where you deal out four of these cards, one for each state that is currently on the board, and then you hold an auction for each one of them. But you have no idea what that poll will do. Uh, generally speaking, the range of possibilities is that they can they range from for each player they can go from minus two to plus three mm -hmm. and each card generally has three positive colors and two negative colors um and we played with a variant where you have to choose one one positive and one negative i think uh, i'm not sure if that's the case in the base game i think in the regular game you just pick two Okay, Maybe. anyways. But you can spend a bunch of blind money on something that might help you you're almost doing it more to avoid being hurt. And 
we ran into several situations where the person who won it, you know, chose themselves to go up or they chose someone who was already, oh, and I should also say these, this opinion track basically ranges from plus two to minus two, plus to minus two. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's only a five step, it's five step track. So each one of these cards that could move you two or three steps in one direction or the other, um, is qu- it can be quite significant, but the randomness of, did you pull, is this opinion good for you or is it neutral for you? Or do you even care about this region? And it happens after most of your other actions. It's one of the last things that happens. So you end up spending a lot of money to avoid a possible bad outcome. And you have no idea what you're getting. It's just, it's just, it, it, it feels bad <laughs> to play. Yeah. Um, and I think that was just the crux of it is that it wasn't, it wasn't fun. Um, well, and it's, and, one of the, it's one of the very few ways you can spend money. Yeah. So everything else, up just we had, we had more than money enough in. money for everything else that we wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't for, for like in old school, like supposed to be a complex, tough Euro game. First of all, it's not that complex. It's midweight, but it was shockingly like easy going with your resources in terms of money. You just get more than you need. As, as we kind of mentioned, though, we, we did play with a couple of variants that uh, veterans of the game have recommended. I think we liked roughly half to two-thirds of them. You know, there might have been I think, six. I think on four. the whole, they improved the game. There were a couple that we thought reduced some decision-making points and could have been made better. Yeah. Um, like, the, there was the one that made... Generally, several actions you do... You roll a die and it's a one to three and you lose one to three somethings. Um, oh, the party, the national party members, uh, which it hurts a lot. Um, so obviously that could be very swingy. We played in a variant where it's just always two. Uh, and I think the main case where that comes up is these outside contribution cards that you can play at the end of the round as just kind of extra income. Um, but that variant said that it was just always a flat minus two votes or party members. Um, right. So, which didn't make much sense, which just, it just reduced decisions because you're like, well, I played the biggest one first, then the next one, then the next one. Um, yeah. because there's no difference. There's no trade off. Um, whereas printed on the cards, I think they show one, two or three dice. Um, so I think if you scaled them a little bit, that would have made that variant better, which also played into the fact that everyone had a ton of money to burn on these opinion polls. So they were going for forty, fifty thousand or something at the end of the game, uh, which is a ridiculous amount of money, and all because going from a plus two multiplier to a minus two multiplier is devastating. Yeah, because so, the number of yeah. votes you get in any particular region is equal to the amount of like influence cubes you have there multiplied by yeah, this so multiplier the- number. Yeah, the other really cool part of the game was the party platforms, I thought, at least. Um, oh, I thought so it was great, yeah. And also, that was again, really, cool. really thematic. Each region has their own platform of issues, and I think in the game there's like six or seven different issues, and you can be positive or negative on each one of them. So you have your personal, your, your party platform, and then each state has the local politics. And then throughout the game, every time you... Uh, run one of the state elections one of those one or two of those local platforms or issues will go to the national stage and will become important uh on that level so you're vying for positions you're trying you have limited ability to swap out your personal political party platform and then as you go the farther into the future the states you only see some of the the party platform. Um, so you're trying to adjust and jockey and look and say, well, I'm going to switch to be pro taxes now because it's going to help me in two of these elections and it's on a national stage now. And then the amount that you intersect with other players allows you to potentially form a coalition, which means you pool your votes, you probably win the election, and then you each get to vote one of those. You get some bonus points. You both get some bonus points and you both get to vote an issue into the national politics. So I really liked that. I think it might have been better if the parties started with slightly more evenly distributed platforms. 
because the game we played, you and I forget his name, but uh, the red player, or were you red or were you black? I don't you, remember. But you, I think you were black. The player across this table was red, and you guys lined up on like four out of five issues mm-hmm. from the beginning of the game and pretty much stayed in lockstep most of the game. And then Siddharth and I were in the center, and we had like two overlapping and then Rand was on the end and he was opposite all of us on almost everything, uh, which really hurt him because he couldn't, we were all kind of, you know, adjusting the politics to suit our shared, our shared platforms. And he was getting, you know, he was ending up on the wrong side of almost every one of these debates basically. Which is really cool again, thematically because it models what we see in any kind of political system where, you know, even if you, even in a system like Germany's electoral system, which does, I think it's Germany and Australia have a very similar or maybe the same system, which actually really incentivizes more than two parties, Mm -hmm. unlike the United States system and many of the other systems. But even in that kind of situation, you know, the fact that the parties exist in the first place isn't just that people think like each other. It's that they realize if they make some a number of compromises they can group up with other people and then become stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in any political system, you're going to have a kind of convergence towards the middle of political opinions by the political parties, especially the ones that stick around a while to where they end up being somewhat similar in many different areas. And then it's often uh, the result of big kind of paradigm shift level social changes or big grassroots movements type things to actually bring new ideas into the conversation. But, you know, viewpoints, especially when you look at two party systems tend to kind of meet towards the middle, just as a function of how incentives works and how politics works and democracy works um, as an institution. So the game models that, exceptionally well by just incentivizing people to kind of converge in support of the same issues because those are the issues that end up being popular in that game. Mm-hmm. That was really uh, cool really, to see kind of yeah. as how everyone's pl- party platforms evolved kind of towards the same things <laughs> at right. the but end. It, we had very then, similar the platforms. Is, the deck is designed so that everyone can't do that. Uh, which is necessary because the the push towards that is so strong. Yeah, that was a really cool part. Uh, In terms of game balance, I think it could have helped to have more balanced starting positions, but that's more of a minor thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, more than any game that I can remember, and the feeling coming out of it was, wow, that was a really interesting game. I wish it was tweaked in these 10 ways. (laughs) Like, it just needs development. And, you know, it's an old game. And fortunately, there's a reprint on the way from Spielworks, I think. Oh, I hope I get that right. I believe it's Spielworks. And I'm really excited to see what kind of changes they make, if any. And I really hope they do. Because with some refinement and development and tweaking on that design, it could go from a really interesting game to just a masterpiece level game. Yeah, The topic is so interesting. It has so many cool fundamental core concepts. And even seeing all the things we saw as flaws, I still had a blast with it. Yeah, for sure. It was really cool. Yeah. Also, hopefully the reprint comes with better art. <laughs> the uh, I mean, I didn't really care. It's such... Yeah, you could clean it up, you could make it a lot prettier, but that wasn't the thing I was focused on. So. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's a meaty game, and you know, you get away with a lot if your game design is good. The biggest thing that bugged me was that two of the, like, buildings, or, like, two of the categories of things had buildings on them, and they looked very similar. Uh, that should Wait, have been which two? What, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, some of the, the, yeah, the policies, yeah. Yeah, which was just an odd choice. Although I hope they keep the square tomatoes. They keep the tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, there's a genetic engineering issue, and the symbol for that was these square tomatoes. Which was With awesome. like a logo on it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or a barcode printed into the tomato. <laughs> yes. 
And uh, we all were pro-tomatoes for most of the game. Yeah, yeah. There was a big pro-tomato, pro-cube tomato push. Anyways, we moved on to that after playing that all morning and early afternoon. It was actually much easier. Like, it was an easier teach than I thought, and it wasn't, like, eight hours long like I feared. We Not including the teach and lunch, we probably, what, a little over four hours of playtime? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Four to five yeah. hours, somewhere there. I think it was, like, five and a half total with the teach and with a lunch break. We then settled down to play Glory to Rome, which you already ranted about, right? Yeah, we talked about this in our small two-player games. That's right. Uh, I think this game is terrible. <laughs> I think it might. Reading the cards, you're like, oh, this is cool. This would be a fun ability to have. And then you just don't get to do anything because you didn't draw the right cards and you're bad at the game and someone else has played it uh, 30 times and just knows how to play. So I'm willing to say that the game could be fun, but that was a terrible play of it. And I've already said this, so I'll stop there. Yeah. As a somewhat new thought, I think even if the game ends up becoming... Something that I find interesting and not frustrating. I still don't see why it's such a revered design. Because, yeah, there's this idea that it's a, oh, it's a, it's a relatively short card game that has lots of super cool interactions and is like for gamer, gamer people. Might have been novel back, oh man, how long ago was this game made? Yeah, 14 years ago. It might have been novel then, but like, if you want a meaty short card game for people who like heavy games, like you can find one that's not that doesn't have massive like runaway leader problems or one that doesn't rely on you tapping into a couple really super powerful synergies to have a chance at winning. Like games have gotten better than this while also feeling somewhat similar. I mean even Chodic I think did better with innovation. Like, I, I like Innovation quite a bit, and it's got crazy stuff, and you can sometimes find a combo that works really well, but it also does a better job of reining that in so that there's counterplay, and I didn't see much of an ability for that to happen with Glory to Rome. So I think it got a lot of its novelty and kind of popularity by the fact that it had a bunch of publishing issues and is super rare. I'll, I'll give it a shot next time I have the opportunity, but if I still hate it after the second play, I'll probably leave it alone and uh, yeah. be, a, be a grouch about it. Mm-hmm. After Glory to Rome, though, we... We played the prettiest play. game of the entire weekend. Yeah. By a, prettiest game I, in, like, I've played substantial in, I don't margin. even know how, how... Okay, how far back would you have to go to find a game that you would say is prettier than this game? Like, oh. Infinity? <laughs> like, is this the prettiest game you've ever played? I don't know. Is it top five? Maybe. You you have different aesthetic opinions I mean, on certain games versus others, though. So. Like, the illustrations of the birds are magnificent. Yeah. And they're just beautiful. And the rest of the game is very good. As you, Like, the, the design, visual design of the rest of the game is very good, as you would expect from Stonemaier. And the production. As a whole, I don't know if I would say it's the prettiest game I've played. It's, it's certainly top tier. You know. Yeah. Birds, come on. And but especially it, it, compared well, to yeah. the rest of the games we played. Like, Let's Make a Bus Route was was attractive and cute. But, like, man, we played some ugly games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, Democra definitely looks old. Glory to Rome, Democra there's nothing old. going on there. Glory to Rome, uh, we played the prettiest version of it. I don't know if you've seen the original printing of that game. It's like Windows 3.1 clip art. <laughs> like, I'm not even oh, joking. Okay. It's nice. notoriously hideous. Okay. We played the most attractive version of that game. Uh, Sidereal Confluence, you said, was not, it wasn't pretty. It's yeah. used uh, better production. Bloody in is... Uh, bloody in is whatever. Is, all right, yeah. We'll yeah. talk about the, the last one next. But yeah, we expand. Absolutely stunning to look at those those birds. Birds are great. The egg candy pieces. Yes. Um, we I think we played like a Kickstarter version that had uh, fancy wooden food symbols. Oh, yeah. I don't know if those will be available in the retail release but they looked really nice the little bird feeder dice tower was cool it, it should have it been was awkward to given use, but how big and heavy those dice were like i had to hold the the dice tower bird feeder thing in one hand every time i rolled it because they were gonna like knock it down or scoot it over but cool concept and the game itself is a lovely game it probably wouldn't hit my top 100 it might come a bit close it's a fine game really elevated by its production value is, is my my baseline summary i think 
certainly, I think even including Charterstone, the lightest game from Stonemaier. I'd never played their first release, but I've played the rest. Oh, wait, no, I know. Maybe I've only really played their heavier games because there was the Between Two Cities one, which was supposed to also be light. So that one might have been lighter, but a light family weight game, like light to medium alongside maybe like Tokaido in Rules Overhead. And Stonemaier does, man, they do such a good job with making the game easy to understand by the visual aspect of the game. Like there's lots of tricks. They, they, they just with crush Scythe. the production of games. Yeah, I mean, Jamie's just so good yeah. at it. Yeah. And there's so much care put into it that, I mean, I always think of like the easy to point out example for how much thought Stonemaier puts into their games is with the scythe rule that like anything plastic can fight and anything wood cannot. It's like, oh, wow. Not only did they find the space to have minis in a kind of a non-gratuitous way in terms of like visual overload, they turned it into an easy mnemonic to remember a certain rule. For Wingspan, anyways, it uh, looks great. It's essentially, it's a tableau builder game. You're basically drafting birds, paying for the birds, putting them into your tableau. And the nifty part of the game is that you're building this tableau in three rows. And whenever each of the rows is assigned to a particular action, uh, three of the four actions in the game, there's like, get food, lay eggs. What was the last one? Draw cards. Draw cards, yeah. Really basic stuff. Uh-huh. Whenever you do one of those, you also activate the ability of all the birds on that row if they have an activated ability like that. So you kind of cascade down and your actions get stronger as the game progresses. And you can find yeah. some really you know, nice synergies with that. I found one in the second game we played where I was able to effectively ignore the the get food action because I had a particular bird where when I activated it on the row, it did something to turn eggs into food. I think it was a bird that eats eggs. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you put those, you put those on the egg row. So you you get eggs and then you turn some of those eggs into resources or into food to get more birds. Right. So you you can pretty much end up being victory points at the end of the game also. So Yeah. yeah. So it was get victory points and resources and get more resources, and then play birds for more re- victory points. And yeah, so you had a good combo there for sure. Yeah, um, uh, and it's just a, think, a really lovely game about trying to find something like that. Yeah. I think there's a bit too much randomness in just the selection of birds and the food dice. It's just a, a like a half step too far on the randomness scale to consistently be able to get something you like. But the process of playing the game is very enjoyable. Yeah, it's it's a delightful to play. There's not that much strategy. There's enough of tableau building that you you get that enjoyment of you know building up an engine and and so forth. But I didn't think it was revolutionary. I thought it was a good game that I enjoyed playing that had incredible production and beautiful art. Yeah. I mean, we had the podcast about like what games do the aesthetics increase or decrease your estimation of the game by a noticeable amount. I mean, this game probably gets a full like this has to like headline half <laughs> on my ten point scale yeah. just for not only the visuals but because it's birds and I love birds. You know, you all listened to my my interview with with Elizabeth Hargrave, the designer. Like we geeked out about birds. Uh, speaking of which, the new house, lots of birds. There's a yard there, and I've seen a number of different birds out in the yard, and they are very happy. So many birds. Yes. Uh, hopefully, the cat doesn't eat them when we bring her over there, but. Yeah, I mean, I I talked with Isaac uh, Shalev, who, again, referencing previous podcasts, we've had him on the podcast before, and he made a comment that I think is very astute about the game. He said he felt like it lacked some bite, and I think that's a really good word choice there, that it's just a little too easygoing, a little too kind of happy-go-lucky, when, you know, for a really good game, you want tension and this the only tension that exists in wingspan really is like oh man i didn't get the bird type that i wanted to fulfill this objective like the cards came up bad for me and that's just not very good tension that's just unhappiness uh through some randomness so i love that it's getting a lot of recognition it's been in the new york times it's been in the london times i think it was in science 
science magazine. It's just called Science, I think. Getting tons and tons of press, and that's really neat because it's a it's a fun representation of our hobby, even if it's not the best game in our hobby. But you know, if someone tried to make a uh, an article in Science magazine or the New York Times about Mage Knight, it it would go over everyone's head. So I think this is a great kind of little example for people outside of the hobby to say, hey, there's some really cool games going on in here. <laughs> and then finally, the last game we played at the Granite Games Summit is Gaia Project, or as I like to call it, Ugly Terra Mystica. <laughs> so, okay, we'll come back to that. But just and, to... and then I call Terra Mystica Pretty Gaia Project. <laughs> I do not get your hate on Gaia Project. Okay, I think I'm the colors... I'm only talking about the visuals. I do really, yeah, I do no, really no, no. enjoy I, I, I understand. I understand. Okay? I think the colors are better in Gaia Project. I, I cannot even comprehend this opinion. It's so <laughs> bizarre. Like, okay, for those who don't necessarily know about the Gaia, about Gaia Project, there's no the, I suppose. It's... As, I don't, it's I don't Terra Mystica know, I don't for know people that are tired of playing Terra Mystica. closer to a sequel for a game than Gaia Project is for Terra Mystica. Like, yeah. it's not a new version. There are substantial differences. But it's the same underlying idea, set in space with a good number of new mechanisms and changed mechanisms. Yeah, and they also cleaned up a lot of kind of the rough edges on Terra Mystica, which is already an incredible game, and added some new things. And in terms of mechanisms, I thought it was great. Really enjoyed it. I want to play it more. I have I have a few thoughts in that you might kind of always need range, which I feel like crimps mm. your expansion and your tech path to make it harder to go other things because you kind of always have to go that one. But that could be completely off. It could also um, change dramatically based on which of the factions you have. Yeah, that's very true. And the, the map, and, and probably the map too. But well, let's go back to the visuals real quick. Okay. You really think their use of color is better in this? No, 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 no. I think the colors they use are better than the colors in Terra Mystica. I think there are better colors. I'm not saying talking about the use of colors or like the design, uh, like the player aids or something like that. I'm saying like I like the blue in Gaia Project better than the blue in Terra Mystica. That's what I'm saying. Man, like Terra Mystica is such a good looking game. It's like lush and colorful. And is this like bright but mature fantasy? Like usually with fantasy, it's either like grim, dark, you know, muddy, ugly, blood, black on black. Like that one game we saw, or at least no, Matt and I saw at PAX that I've seen before. I can't remember the name, but it, the color palette's literally like gray on black. You either get that, or if you get a, a bright fantasy, it's or like, like above and very <laughs> whimsical, like a like a Ryan Lockett or yeah. Uh, Studio Ghibli kind of thing, right? Terra Mystica was kind of a mature fantasy theme, as as little theme as there was, with bright colors, and I thought it was really nice. And, and I love the, especially the wooden pieces and the way they look after the board is developed. Gaia Project switches the plastic pieces, which on one hand makes sense because it's uh, sci-fi and set in space, and you don't expect a lot of wood, I suppose, uh, in that kind of situation. But the pieces just don't look as good. I I just prefer wood. I think they just look nicer and feel nicer in your hand. And I don't know. And then instead of the nice green and orange and colorful board, you get kind of black space with some similar shaped planets that are all kind of just round and omnicolored. I don't know. And then like See, the side boards back, are kind of dark. Going back and playing Terra Mystica, the colors look a little bit faded to me. I really? still think it's it looks cool. I really like the the physicality maybe. Or the dimensionality of the board as you like build yeah. up these cities and you kind of see the the 3Dness of it, and I like that. That's really cool to me. But I think the the colors look more like something out of Castles of Burgundy than I don't know. They they evoke a Euro, not a this like adventure, which it is a Euro. Oh, which, sure. And I'm not I'm not trying to criticize them. I'm saying oh, I know I I don't get the hate. On Gaia Project, I thought I really li I liked how Gaia Project looked. I liked the visual design. I enjoyed the the specific colors they used. I can see the wood versus plastic argument. I like both. Wood feels nice to hold, but I didn't hate these plastic pieces. Sometimes some plastic pieces are like cheap and hollow and crappy, and I thought these were good plastic pieces as such go. 
And I really, I don't know, I really enjoyed the game. And I, and I, and I didn't get that sense at all. I, I, I thought it all fit together and looked, looked good together. I mean, I think, you know, overall the game looks acceptable. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticize it if it wasn't after Terra Mystica. Anyways, that I think we spent more time on the uh, the colors yeah. <laughs> used in these games. <laughs> hey, I gotta get um, my rant in. Yeah, there you go. Right on, uh, stay on brand. That said, Gaia Project I think is a really cool game. It certainly feels like a game for people who have played a lot of Terra Mystica, because absent that, I think it might feel a bit convoluted in terms of like the number and types of resources and all the conversions but if you have terra mystica as a starting point it's like okay they added this and this right in terms of resources right and they added this and this they moved back. this over here yeah and cleaned up some edges yeah in order to allow yeah. for kind of a more complex web of interactions and potentially a wider variety of strategies uh with all the different factions mm-hmm. where do we start i guess i guess for me, by far the best update is the tech trees. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so tech trees were awesome. The way they spread those out, they made the temple track where the cult tracks actually matter and going up one versus another yeah, more than just added, what, the end of round bonuses. There's six now, I think? Yeah, they, 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 there's six of them now, and then they put a different mechanic, or sorry, mechanism, mechanism, uh, <laughs> or resource or something on each of those six tech trees so you go up one you get some extra workers and money and stuff kind of like the way the temple bonus tiles used to work in Terra Mystica mm-hmm. and they kind of like rearranged where those go and put them in columns instead of just individual tiles so you go up the the blue one and you kind of get more tech to continue getting tech there's the one that kind of gives you some extra income there's one that I alluded to earlier that gives you extra range because in space, things are farther apart. <laughs> yes. And so the board is made up of a bunch of, let's see, it's hexagons. It's still hexagons. And then you've got these large hexagon tiles. And I think there's 10 of them that you put together to make up your game board, at least for the four-player board that we played. So they had the same, you know, same deal, different colors. And however you set up the board, you'll have groupings of planets or planets that are close to each other. One of the biggest new things is these Gaia planets, and they come in two varieties, kind of raw, I guess you could call them like raw or wild, and then like terraformed, basically Gaia planets. And they are essentially, as you might expect, wild planets uh, or color wild so that any any color can land on them. If it's the purple type, you have to terraform it for a round first and then you or Gaia form it for a round first, and then you can land on it the following turn. And... They they don't have no they do do they have do they have planet terraforming Gaia forming on planets or only on the Gaia worlds only on the Gaia worlds you paid you you still paid to land on planets that were not uh, your oh, okay. home so you could still resource buy, but you didn't you like still physically change them yeah okay right there was nothing that like overlaid like in Terra Mystica yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Gaia worlds were pretty cool. Uh, you've got these special lander pieces that go on on the Gaia worlds, and there's a tech tree devoted to making those cheaper and getting more of your those Gaia landers. And I there's one more that I can't think of right now. The brown one on the far left. What did it give you? I think that was effectively shovels. Oh Whatever yeah, that's the, the shovel track. The Terramisca shovel track, making it. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, so those were all really cool. And then as you go up, there's a unique tech you can get at the top. And it's the same sort of deal of you've got to found a town, or they're called federations in Guy Project because it's a set of planets. And those will give you a key, which lets you unlock either the top tier, uh, top spot on any tech tree, which is usually a bunch of points. Uh, or, a it, well, I should more generally, it's a one-time bonus that kind of replaces some of the bonuses from that tech tree. So it's an end of game sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some unique techs up there. Uh, there's also techs on each column and then a couple general ones that you can get that uh, those are like the temple bonus tiles from Terra Mystica where they give you something. Some of them are one time, some of them are repeating income. So that, that was all, that whole board was great. I really liked that. In terms of the end of round scoring, they changed that. So there's 
there's just two end of end of game bonuses, right? Yes. No, there's there's also round. Oh, no, sorry, there were end of round stuff. Similar. There was there was end of round stuff, and then there was two end of game bonuses. Yeah. The only other real changes were the terraforming, and then just like one more resource type. Yeah. So you've got a it's called like knowledge or something, and it's basically tech points. So you've got those which are new, and you've got the quickies, quick mm-hmm. green cubes uh, as a new thing. And it introduces the concept of range uh, between planets instead of along a river. Oh, there was also the thing, which I didn't, you did it a whole lot more with your power cubes where you like, you use them in a specific way and they get like partitioned off to the side and then returned to bold too. Yeah, yeah. When you when you do the Gaia forming, you have to basically temporarily lose power out of your bowls, and mm-hmm. it goes off to the side. And then when the next round, there's the Gaia phase right after income, and you get your Gaia landers back, you convert the planet, and the power comes back into your bowls. And I had a bonus. Well, no. Is it anyone, or is it, is it me? I think oh, I had a been a where bonus. I could convert that power that guy power that comes back into resources okay yeah, uh, i think that was specific, all was, that like that's all you did was guy stuff and i literally did none of it like our strategies couldn't have been more different so we saw very yeah, you, different aspects your, of your the game base basically let you just ignore gaia forming and instead get what you got something else out of you basically set your land get more of those uh, quick quick cubes yeah yeah. Which, which are very high value in terms of resources. So I was able to kind of turn that into various things. I didn't I didn't optimize the strategy at all, really. So I was playing super tactically, and uh, I saw at the end of the game how I could have optimized that into a much more streamlined strategy. But yeah, yeah. it was interesting. So all of that is good. Love the tech tree. Love the interplay. Um, I like the planets, makes it a little different. That's a case where I might prefer Terra Mystica, but I don't know. It's just, you know, it's a different thing, and it's it was different. certainly it was certainly good. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest, the other biggest disconnect that we had, and I think we shared this, was that these alien races just they didn't have any weight or like resonance in your mind of like this race. Oh, it makes sense that they should Gaia form or something. Whereas yeah. in in Terra Mystica, you kind of have all these general fantasy tropes that you can tie into, and you're like, oh, the dwarves dig, and the engineers build bridges, and the the witches, I guess, they fly around on brooms, and they visit people, or the, the mermaids are all about the water, and the cultists are all about the culture. You just There's like some general high fantasy tropes that you can just kind of tie into, and you'd be like, oh, I understand what this race is kind of supposed to do. Yeah. Gaia Project and, is similar to Stereal Confluence in that sense that it just kind of like made up words yeah alien cloth yeah Uh, and i i I don't know what the design process was but from a play perspective it's basically like here's a special power and here's a random word (laughs) that describes that's the name of this board that you're playing with uh and so there was no thematic tie-in there i think we what what we were talking about our comment was that the the overall narrative of the game makes more sense the idea that you go to different planets and explore and settle and link them together in a federation makes more much more sense than this like random landscape where a bunch of fantasy races happen to be all together and they want to settle out and they're they want to settle next to each other but don't really interact in any other way like the very broad strokes make a whole lot more sense for a sci-fi setting like that just because the idea of going to different planets but right so like space the idea of space exploration sure but not the individual races because we don't well (laughs) yeah as a culture we don't have that much we don't know that much about you know there aren't established space uh, or alien races unless you're going to go to a specific ip well not necessarily. I mean, right. there are tropes like like Twilight Imperium taps into those tropes. There's the bug alien race, and it's kind of a horde, right? There are the nomad race, right? And they're nomadic. Yeah. Like you can still there are some tropes. They're not quite as distinct, but maybe if we looked at Gaia Project a bit closer. But on first glance, there didn't seem to be much of a connection at all. Yeah. So I mean, it's definitely a game I want to play more. After one play, I don't think it's as good as Terra Mystica, just because I think it adds a little bit too much complication. But 
if you played Terra Mystica a lot, that's precisely what you want. Like, if you're at a high level of Terra Mystica, which I'm certainly not, you want a sequel that has more complications. So I think it's perfect for the people who have played a lot of Terra Mystica. I still like the more streamlined nature of Terra Mystica. But having said that, like, Gaia Project felt a lot more free and open and accepting of perhaps multiple different strategies. Whereas Terra Mystica, even if you played only a handful of times, you kind of know, okay, I need to be able to do these things. And it's very marginal play. Whereas Gaia Project feels a bit more freeform, a bit more sandboxy. Yeah, I really enjoyed playing it. I thought it was great. It's one of those things where I feel the same way about, it's like with Through the Ages, not, not exactly the same, but like the new Through the Ages. It's like, I have the old one. I really like the old one. Do I want to shout out 70 bucks for the new one? Not yeah. sure. I feel right. it kind of similar to this one. It's like, I already have Terra I still love Terra I don't feel like I've played it out. I really liked playing Gaia Project. And I would happily play Gaia Project if we had it. But I don't know if I want to shell out and buy it when I already have 85% the same game, right? Yeah. And I assume at some point in the future, we might consider it a bit stronger. You know, yeah. Now, especially that we're, we've played Terra Mystica a couple of times since then, just because it's like, man, I, I forgot. How yeah, after Terra we played Guy Project, you're like, I want to play Terra Mystica. And we played it twice in a month or three times yeah. in a month or something. I'm, I still want to play it. Like, I'm still suggesting it every time people come over. Like, oh, how about I, Terra I'm, Mystica? I'm literally playing against the AI on my computer as we speak about this. <laughs> yeah, because you go back to it and it's like, wow, that this was a really good game. It is a good game. Right, yeah, it just seems like so so long ago. It's not even that old. But yeah, both of them excellent. If if you if you don't own either, I would probably still recommend Terra Mystica first just because it's again more streamlined. It's simpler to learn. To go from nothing to Gaia Project is it's a heavy game to jump into from beast, nothing. Yeah. Terra Mystica is heavy on its own, but if you're going from Terra Mystica to Gaia Project, it makes perfect sense that, mm-hmm. you know, that jump so if you liked Terra Mystica and you don't have it or want something new or you prefer space, then Gaia Project is awesome. If you otherwise buy the one you prefer, I don't know. <laughs> I think Steve they're both good. Yeah, Look at the, some pictures the... first of the game set up on the table and then choose. <laughs> so that's what we played at the Granite Games Summit. Um, if you are in the New England area, they do they do one twice a year, right? Don't they have a spring and a fall one? I can't remember. Really? The fall one might be so. a bit... I don't know. They're they're expanding. I know they announced a kind of spinoff in Portland, Oregon that they're doing. So they're doing more conventions and good for them because they, they certainly put on a really nice convention. Like I went to another one that was about the same size, the same kind of thing. Were you there with me on that one? Which one? TotalCon? Or? Yeah. Was that what it was called? That's the one we went to like two weeks, three weeks before. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were there. Yeah. Like, that one wasn't run nearly as well as Granite Games. I think that one was significantly bigger, and we didn't go see all the pieces of it. I don't um, know how much bigger it was, necessarily. It was more broken up, and I guess there was more like RPG stuff, whereas Granite Games is like all board games. Yeah. I think so. TotalCon, it, it had... You know, other it had a bunch of RPG going on. I think there were other rooms for video games and maybe some other things and cosplay. And it was a more broad audience con, whereas sure. uh, G- G2S is more specifically board games. But Granite Game Summit is run extreme, extremely well and um, good people there. So check them out. Follow them. Go next time. We'll see yeah. you there. We will definitely. I, I will make Makes every sense. efforts to be there as much as I can, you know, unless I'm out of state or something, because it's super fun. Anyways, that's our podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the Thoughtful Gamer at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Very simple. I made it, you know, easy for people to remember. Well, let me restart that. That was an awful <laughs> joke. Don't forget to check out the thethoughtfulgamer.com. Don't forget to check me out on social media facebook and twitter i refuse to do anymore i keep seeing people jumping over to instagram and i've put my my fist down i could barely no, you're not about that insta life is that what they're, is that actually a word people use uh it might be i don't know it's kind of like 
you just kind of put Insta at the beginning of whatever you want, and then it relates to Instagram. Okay. Insta, no. Um, <laughs> our brain can only handle so much. Uh, what about Snapchat, Mark? Come on. It's all it's what the kids are doing these days. I thought the kids were past that on just something I've never even heard of. Oh, maybe. You're getting old. <laughs> I've I've been old a while. Uh, in in feeling, not necessarily a number. <laughs> if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer. You'll get access to live streams of our podcasts as well as our Discord channel where we have lots of fun discussions about games and other things. Baseball season has started, so there's an uptick in baseball talk. And by baseball talk, I mostly mean me typing things about baseball and everyone else ignoring it. But go And by that, I you mean they, Mark talking about how good the Cardinals are and how they're totally going to win this year. I think they'll make the playoffs this year. <laughs> they certainly upgraded over last year. Last year, they were very close. So Hey, my Seattle Mariners are randomly like the best team in baseball. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Really? They're like 10 and 2. Didn't they have a super hot start last year, too, before failing? Yeah. Like, okay. I have zero confidence, but they've been scoring at a breakneck pace, and they lead the division, and they are crushing it for the first two weeks of the season. Woohoo! Well, uh, good for them. We got Paul Goldschmidt, yeah. and he's doing Paul Goldschmidt things. And I'm excited to see Harrison Bader on center field being awesome. Probably the best defensive center fielder in baseball right now. I think he ended up being the best one last year. Anyways, go Cardinals. What was I talking about? Patreon. I think that's everything. Patreon. Oh. Dis- Dis- Discord is what you were saying. Discord, but... yeah, yeah. And uh, rate it. Rate the podcast wherever you can. I don't know. Yelp? No. no oh. Probably not Yelp. Just rate our rate the podcast. It's probably on iTunes. It's on... Well, where I else can you, you get for it? for certain it's on iTunes. Yeah, it's on iTunes. Is it on Spotify? Is it on... Ooh. What are the I other think... ones? I think... I think it is on Spotify. I think I got an email that's like, oh, Spotify is doing podcasts now. And my podcast provider's like, we have automatically put it there. And then I deleted that email. Um, nice. The only other one I I was just talking to on... someone. I was in Seattle a few weeks ago. And a friend of a friend there, I was telling him about the podcast. Because we were playing board games. Yeah. And he said he looked you up on Spotify and couldn't find you. So I was going to give you grief about it. but Oh, this was last week? Uh two weeks ago oh i got the email months ago i'll have to look into that i may or may not be on spotify i'm sorry people uh i will get on that coming soon maybe sure um that's everything podcast over good night everyone